this is Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind with me, psychologist Professor Richard Wiseman. And me, science journalist Marnie Chesterton. This is the podcast where we delve into the psychology of everyday life and answer your questions about human behaviour. Expect fascinating facts, scintillating science, and this might even improve your life. In this episode, we're talking about the hidden persuaders that affect our decision-making. Are we rational? Do our names affect our lives? And how are we swayed by advertising? You mean we end up buying things we don't want? Story of my life. Let's get on with the show. We talked about subliminal advertising and buying things we don't want. (laughs) It's actually one of my favourite episodes in the past, um, which I recommend... I recommend people, if they haven't heard it, go back to it because uh, Richard, despite being a professor of psychology, yes. got done. Oh, many times. Many uh, times. My it, house is full of things that I don't need, don't <laughs> want and shouldn't have bought, basically. Uh, so uh, it's it's a celebration of my gullibility. I love it. Um, but today we're going to explore some of the psychoanalytical techniques that people use to make other people like you buy things you don't need. Uh, absolutely. Well, we, we're going to explore the psychology of these little things called hidden persuaders. So you often think, oh, I made this rational decision. I thought through all the various options, went with that. But what some psychologists and some advertising folks have looked at are the very small things that influence our decisions that we don't even notice. Okay. And that's the whole hidden persuasion literature. And it comes from the book, The Hidden Persuaders, uh, Vance Packard, which is a really interesting book, comes out in the 50s. And prior to that, advertisers were behaviorists. So if you look at behaviorism within psychology, it's the stimulus response idea. That the way in which you get a rat uh, to press a bar is you reward the rat every time they press the bar. And so the idea was the way you get someone to buy something is you just reward them every time they buy the product. They get a good experience or they pair the product with the sorts of people that they want to be associated with in terms of their products and so on. Then along comes Vance Packard and he says, hold on a second, there's this whole thing called Freudian psychology with unconscious wishes and desires. And that's all about how we don't realise the sorts of factors that affect our behaviour. And that could be really interesting in terms of advertising. So it's a very different approach. So the bit that people who haven't read that book, like me, know about is the cigarettes bit. Yes, which is quite rude, I think. Is is it the rude one? It's, I don't think it's the rude, but it's the bit where the cigarette advertisers realise that they're missing a market in women because it was socially unacceptable okay. for women to smoke. And so what they did was they paid suffragettes on this newfangled women's lib marches to hold these things and smoke them. And then that became a shorthand in this emerging world of cinema for if you wanted to project a strong, independent, confident woman. You just gave her a fag. And so suddenly the most beautiful women in the world were smoking and everyone was like, I want to be like her. Uh, so that's interesting. What I thought you were about to say is, is, is what most people know the book for, uh, is there is some very rude things in there. Uh, so what people were doing was was putting in various sort of um, genitalia and so on, hidden into advertisements. The idea being that from a Freudian perspective, you'd look, I don't know why I suddenly want to buy those tomatoes, uh, both of them. But the book is actually about far more than that. It really is about this notion of how we are persuaded by these unconscious factors. And one of the things that they talk about in there, which is central to psychology, is how do you even get at that? 
I mean, how, how do you figure out what people are thinking? Because if you say to them, would you buy this detergent or that detergent? It's, a, it's not really how it works in the shops where they just pick up one or the other. If it's unconscious as well, they don't know what... what... Absolutely. It's useless asking people. Absolutely. So they pioneered all these, I think, quite fascinating methods. So they might go, here's the shopping list of person A. What sort of person do you think that is? And you do a little character sort of sketch. And then you go, here's another shopping list. What sort of person's that? And what you're doing is very subtly influencing what's on that list. And then you, what you see is that that really radically changes what they think of the person, but they may not even know why. They might not know which item it was that made them think in that particular way. So it's a very different way of doing psychology. Hmm. And is that still used today? Not so much. No, I mean, it's a lovely idea. I mean, psychologists at the minute quite like people ticking boxes, which is a very sort of conscious thing. And there's a lot of debate about what are we measuring here? And I tend to go down with behaviour. I tend to think, you know, if you want to measure whether people are buying, you know, this brand or that brand, just go with that. Don't ask them which they're going to choose because often what they think isn't a very good um, indication of what they're actually going to do for all sorts of reasons. So moving on with hidden persuaders, one aspect of persuading people to part with their money is the charity sector. You mentioned in a previous episode the impact of colour on getting people to donate charity into charity buckets. Does that work in other fields? Can you kind of get people to buy stuff just because it's a different colour? Yeah, I mean, colour's really important. So, for example, when it comes to detergent, do you want a packet that's yellow or blue? Because that makes a huge impact on people's decisions. Now, they're not going to know that. They're just picking it up and sort of thinking about it when they're using it. But, in fact, the colour makes a huge difference. So, so colours are very important. Can we talk a bit about music? Because this can be so emotive. We've had a question from Nicola who says, I learnt in my media degree course to be careful when using popular music in documentaries as songs can have different emotional connotations for people to the ones that you're trying to tap into. I'm presuming the same thing goes for advertising. Yeah, it's a very good question. And actually, been lots of research looking at hidden persuaders in, in the form of music, and particularly music and wine. So this is where in a wine shop, you might play in either some classical music or some pop music, as I refer to it. So um, studies by Charles uh, Arini in the early 1990s, either playing in Mozart or Fleetwood Mac in a wine store, researchers pretending that they are shop assistants, but actually noting down what everyone's doing. And the question is, what happens? I reckon people buy classier French wine if you play Mozart and they maybe buy a bottle of rum if you play Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> That's what I do. <laughs> Why a bottle of rum for Fleetwood Mac? No, maybe bourbon. Right. Okay. I don't know. It just makes me feel like I'm cool. I'm going to do bourbon shots. Fair enough. Well, you're very close. Very close. <laughs> it's the amount they spend okay. on the wine. Okay. So just playing in the Mozart, people spend on average over three times more Whoa. in terms of buying expensive bottles of wine. And again, they're not going to be aware of that. But it's an unconscious influence and they're thinking, oh, I'm in a place with classical music. That's sophisticated. <laughs> I'm the sort of person uh, that should buy sophisticated wine. They end up spending three times as much. Now, we talked about the Mozart effect uh, in a previous episode. Yeah, this is a very different Mozart effect. <laughs> this yes. is, but I just wonder, one of our listeners was asking, they don't actually like Mozart with, mm. with this work with Vaughan Williams. Has anyone kind of switched out? Because Mozart's a fairly basic level classical music. I'm mm. 
just yes. one. If you upped the ante by going for something, I don't know, Shostakovich. No, maybe not. That's that's a bit avant-garde. I know nothing of classical music, but I see what you mean. I think, so what you're trying to do is make people think, oh, I'm quite sophisticated because I'm listening to Mozart. Yes, yeah. I think what you want is something that works, that has that effect on most people. If you're really in classical music, you might walk in and go, oh my goodness, that's not very sophisticated, in which case you end up spending less. But you're, you're looking for something that affects most of your customers. Yeah, Fleetwood Mac, I've got nothing to say about. I went to see Fleetwood Mac once. Really? And it was a friend who said he had a spare ticket and would I like it? And I thought, when am I going to see Fleetwood Mac? And I barely saw Fleetwood Mac because oh. it was Wembley and, and so they were tiny, teeny, tiny people and I certainly couldn't hear Fleetwood Mac because Wembley Stadium was full of everyone singing. They're quite a kind of sing-along band right. so I had none of the actual band and quite a lot of a woman next to me just... That would annoy me. I paid 100 quid for that ticket. But sure, doesn't everyone think... But we're here to see Fleetwood Mac, who presumably are very good musicians. We're not here to just ruin the whole thing for everyone. They don't think they're ruining it. They think they're joining in. There's some psychology for you. It really splits gig goers. Right. It's a current debate on social media. Gig etiquette. Do you sing along with the songs that you love? No. No. <laughs> okay. Very. I tell you, my friend went to see Beyonce and yeah. paid uh, two hundred pounds. I think it was for the ticket. Massive screens over the entire end of the football stadium and. Uh, she looked at one of them and there was a typo on the screen. So that actually misspelled the word renaissance. <laughs> and she said completely ruined the entire concert. <laughs> it was only up there for a split second. We were thinking all this money and someone's just missed out an I in the word renaissance, yeah. even though it's called the Renaissance Tour. Oh. And uh, I was suggesting I'd... afterwards that she should tour as Beyonce's proofreader. No, that would be great. That would be great. I love that level of pedantry. I want to yeah. be friends with that person. Well, I just love the idea of the, uh, the whole concert, all this kind of massive scale and spectacle ruined by... Billions. Billions. By billions. One someone couldn't missing. spell properly. So Adrian North also did other work into wine buying and music. Uh, so this is a lovely study, uh, late 90s, where they played in either French music or German music and looked at the impact on whether people were buying French or German wine and found exactly what you'd expect. When you're playing German music, people end up buying more German wine and vice versa with the French. Is it, has it got to be classy German music or can you just umpar band it? No, you see, I actually put in the word classical. I'm now looking at my notes and realising it doesn't say classical, it's just French or German music. But, I think but, it was an umpire. Wow. Yes, which, which is surprising that anyone remained in the store. <laughs> I know, because I was thinking French music, if someone played the kind of, I don't know, a bit of Edith Piaf, then yes. I'd, I'd definitely think, yes, I want Bordeaux. And, yes. But I'm um, not sure German music. music. Bizarrely, for my funeral, when it does eventually happen, yeah. uh, I've actually written what I want to happen. And it is a very, very long umpire track. Of course Because I'm not going to be around. And the idea, <laughs> the idea of my friends and relatives suffering. having suffering through 15 minutes of an umpire band. 
with with somebody goes, it's what he'd have wanted. <laughs> he would want everyone to have a really miserable really day. Really miserable time. Because he's dead. Why wouldn't they have a miserable day? <laughs> <laughs> so um, You're a cruel man. Well. I uh, like it. Mm, um, so, yes, that's one of the hidden persuaders. <laughs> the, um, uh, and so, back to your funeral. Yes. Is there anything else you've specified? Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Can but, we make um, this an entire episode? You, you could have. There are many of them are surprises. Oh. Yes. Are, I, are um, there pyrotechnics? Uh, not pyrotechnics. There's well, magicians are very big on practical jokes at funerals. Yeah. There's the eulogy practical joke. What was that? Which is that um, as you came in, there was a sort of order of service for the funeral, and again, a friend of mine sat down, looked at the order of service, and in in the middle of it, he was doing a forty minute eulogy that no one had told him about. <laughs> and the reason for that is they'd printed up one order of service that Just said for forty him. minute. Yes. And as he came in, they took it from the bottom of the pile and gave it to him. So no one else had got this this thing, and he sat there sweating thinking, I've got to speak for 40 minutes. I had no idea I was supposed to do it. And that was all in the funeral notes, the person who died. That's so good. Yes. Back to hidden persuaders. Yes, hidden persuaders. Uh, scarcity is another one. So uh, lovely work at University of uh, Hawaii, where they have shown one group of people a jar of biscuits with just a couple of biscuits in. Another group, the same jar, but with lots more biscuits in. So the thinking is, if there are only a few biscuits, then... You want the biscuit. They more. are rare biscuits because there's only a couple of them. Okay. And when you ask people to taste the biscuits from the jar with only one or two versus lots of biscuits, they say the biscuits from the jar with one or two actually taste much better. It's why advertisers go, you know, while stocks last, there's yeah. only a few of them, all of that sort of thing. We think, oh my goodness, there's scarcity here, therefore I must get my bit of it. So do do people go for the biscuit when there's only a couple of them? It's not only that they go with it, it actually tastes better. Yeah. So their evaluation is, yes, I'm not surprised any a few of these around because they're wonderful biscuits. So that very rare one-off antique that you bought from the man who subsequently <laughs> had, had, had a whole of room of them. Yes, that was a saber-toothed tiger skull. Yes, which is, I've now seen in your house. in my house. Yeah, he, he assured me it was the only one he'd ever had for 20 years. And then I bought it on that, that basis and walked past the shop a week later and there's another one in the window. And how does that taste, Richard? Well, um, bitter. <laughs> oh. But it was a great, le- a great lesson in scarcity mm-hmm. that cost me, I think, close to £250. Totally worth it. <laughs> From your perspective. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we can move on to book covers, and I've got a little experiment. Okay. So this is essentially the same picture twice. I'm going to hold this up. Here we go. Thank uh, you. So without, it's a picture of a handsome man. Uh, without thinking about it too much, A or B, who would you go with? Uh, and we should say to people that it's basically the same photo twice. It is the same photo twice. Um, I think the f- key phrase was without thinking about it too much. I can't tell what the difference they is. Don't look for it. That's, that's not a hidden persuader. A. What's the wrong... <laughs> no, B. <laughs> I don't know. I was so look. It's a pouty man. Yes, pouty man. It's a handsome pouty man, and yeah. I was trying to work out whether. But you're thinking about it. This is uh, no, Freudians like, would hate this. What kind of person is he? Is that I've is never that, met him. I just no. found him on the internet. <laughs> okay. A or B? Without thinking about it very much, which should you go with? Fine, B. Good. Let's stick with that. Okay. That's the right answer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> why? Okay. Why? I've lost the will to live. I don't care anymore. <laughs> They've got slightly different shaped faces or something. I have and digitally manipulated to... one aspect okay. of that using my superb Photoshop skills. I think this one's got a thinner face or something. No, he's got larger pupils. Not by much. Because if you, if you do it too much, it looks really weird. But he's a few millimetres larger in B. 
So everything else is the same? Everything else is absolutely identical, which is why you're struggling to find a difference. But what happened, possibly, it could have been chance, it's 50-50, and you chose A first time round, <coughs> was the... <laughs> Ignoring all of that, yeah. Um, what happened was that when we like somebody, our pupils enlarge, and so people with larger pupils tend to be more liked and be seen as more attractive. Ah. So it's one of the reasons why a candlelit dinner, for example, it makes your pupils dilate because it's low light, and so you're seen as more attractive. Okay. So here the theory is, oh, you see one of them, you don't think about it, it's unconscious, slightly larger pupils, you think that's the one I'll go with. So what we did when my book called Quacology came out was that we had half the covers, so it had a woman's face on the cover. Yeah. Half of them, we made the pupils slightly larger. On the back cover, there was something that told you which book cover you got. It didn't say large or small pupils. It was just sort of like a code on the back. And then we asked people once they bought the book to come online, tell us whether they're male or female, and tell us what that code was on the book, on the back. And what we found was that more men had picked up and bought the book with the large pupils. Hmm. on the front, even though they've got no idea why that was the case. That's pretty cool. So we were the first, and that's what I mean. So, so dilated pupils means someone's more in love with you? It means they find you attractive and okay. therefore you tend to find them more attractive. Okay. And so we're the first people to look at the impact of book covers and to do it without asking people, you know, in the lab. We actually went out there in the, the real world. We're very proud of that. That's very cool. Cocology was a very odd book because Freakonomics had just come out and someone at a talk said to me, you should do the same with psychology. And I said, well, I do quirky psychology, I'd call it quirkology. And that was in America. And in the taxi from that talk to the airport, I wrote down all of the topics in that book on the back of a Dan Brown novel, because that's the only thing I got with me. Which one was it? Da Vinci Code. Okay. Which I was annoyed. I was going around America at the time and it was annoying people because in the airports, as I was reading each page, I was just ripping it out and putting it into the bin. <laughs> Why? Well, because it made it lighter as oh, I that, went around. That it's quite makes a big perfect book. sense. Yes. Yeah. Okay. But people looked at me as if I was a little bit strange. No, they're wrong. That's what I thought. This is Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind, and in this episode, we're talking about hidden persuaders. Nodding, nodding. Gary Wells, another great study with hidden persuaders, where you put on some headphones, and in this study, you're told that you're either going to replicate the sorts of movements associated with either jogging or cycling. So it turns out that when people jog, according to this study, they nod, they move their heads up and down. When they cycle, allegedly they move their head from side to side. So you put on the headphones, you listen to an argument being made about a topic, and you are either nodding or shaking your head. You think you're just testing out the, the headphones. In reality, that movement then impacts on whether you agree with the arguments you're hearing through the headphones. Ooh. So if you're nodding, you tend to go, yes, I agree with the things being argued for. When you're shaking your head from side to side, you tend to go, no, I don't agree with it. Is that culturally specific? Because I know in India, sort of head oh, side yes. to side is more agree. Absolutely. So it's a very good example of something that would only work in a particular culture. Yes. So if you can get people to nod along with you, it's more likely they're going to agree with you. But we should also talk about names. Huge amounts of work in terms of hidden persuaders and names. So some of them have looked at when you just put your two or well, three, it would be initials together. Do you get a positive word like hug or joy or a negative word like bum or die? Bum is not a negative word. Well... I dispute that. Um, and what you find out is with people with positive initials live around three to four years longer 
than those with negative initials. And this work has been questioned a little bit. It was one of the many psychology experiments been questioned on the replication front, but still intriguing idea. So the idea is that when you write your initials, as you do again and again throughout life, if you're seeing a positive word or a negative word, it impacts on your longevity. Yeah. Well, what we also like is our own names coming back to us. So this is lots of work by Brett Pelham. When you look at the American census records, you've got more people called Florence living in Florida and more people called George living in Georgia. No! Yes, yes. Uh, more Kenneths in Kentucky and more Virgils in Virginia. Brett Pelham did this. Yeah, yeah, he's done loads of it, yes. 15,000 uh, marriage records. This is his records. job. <laughs> I mean, no, no disrespect meant. That sounded quite disrespectful. No, no, I, no, just, I just love that. Oh, obviously, a psychologist has looked at this. Yeah, no, this it's, is... it's a big old effect. <laughs> so when you look at couples, when you look at the maiden name, they're more likely to share the first initial of their surname than you'd expect by chance alone. Not after they're married, if they've adopted the same name, otherwise it'd be a huge chance of that. But beforehand, they're more likely to share the same initial. Huh. The same idea with brands. So you're more likely to choose a brand that starts with the first letter of your surname than one that doesn't. In terms of making offers on things like eBay and other platforms like that, people often offer a price reduction more to somebody whose first letter of their first name matches the first letter of the seller's first name. Wow. And we're not aware of any of these things. You're just like, you're my people because yeah. the same letters are turning up. Exactly. God, we're shallow. And there's also kind of alphabet effect, which is that if your surname is higher up, as yours is actually in mm -hmm. the alphabet, whenever you see a list, you see your name at the top. Some of us... Hi, Wiseman. Exactly, exactly. Bottom of the list. Yeah, bo very much bottom of the list. And so when I was a kid at school, often you would be put into alphabetical order, sometimes even seated in the class like that. And I was always back of the class, bottom of the list. And so... I did and some... how did that make you feel? Well... Dreadful. It's so, that's a very odd effect. Yes. Because uh, as an author, often books are listed alphabetically in, uh, in a shop, which means that as a wise man, books are right on the bottom shelf, which is not where people are hanging out very much. So, so you really need something like Aardvark as a certain. Yeah, or, I, think or, was, I think it was like Aardman. a K or something like that puts you on eye line because you don't want something that's too high up in the alphabet either. Oh, that's really smart. Yeah. Well, the other thing you could do is just take your books and move on to Eyeline, but no author does that as far as I'm, I'm that's aware. What, that's what Adam Rutherford does. That's what he, we all do. Oh, is it? He told me, I've just been into Waterstones and I've rearranged the books right. and now I do it for him whenever Perfect. I'm in. I'm like, oh, look, let's just make a little pile of Adam Rutherford's books. That's... Not that he needs my help because he's a very excellent author. So I did some work with this, with The, the Telegraph, where we had about 2,000 people. I had to give their surname. They didn't know what the study was about, they had to give their surname and how successful they thought they'd been in various aspects of their life. And what we found, particularly in Korea, as in people's careers, not the country career. I was uh, going to say, <laughs> Korea's an interesting one, name-wise. They've only got about 10 official surnames, and so there's a oh. lot of repetition. Right, OK, well, probably wouldn't work there then. But certainly when we did it, there was a huge alphabet effect. So that in terms of people's careers, when they've got letter, surnames at the start of the alphabet, they're much more successful than those wow. people towards the end. And, it, and it, it was much more pronounced with people who are slightly older in the sample. So it suggests that maybe something that builds up over time. We've had a question from Kate about the connection between names and the job you do. Yeah. And Kate says, when I was at school, the head cook in the school kitchen was called Mr. Cook mm. and my physics teacher was called Mrs. Watt. Coincidence? Surely not. Maybe not. 
Maybe not. I mean, there, there are a lot of those, aren't there? And new scientists famously collected lots of those together. And pneumonia specialist, Peter Achu. Nice. Private detectives, wire and tapping. Oh, that's that's Very, fab. very good, yes. Nominative determinism. Very good. And so it could all be chance. There's a fish physiologist called Mr Fish. Yes, music uh, teachers, uh, Miss Beat and Miss Sharp. New scientists tried to shut this down because they've been reporting on this for decades now, but their readers won't let them. They That's just, great. No, you can't let it lie. You're like, yeah. oh, here's another one. It's great. And loads of people ask me whether my surname is actually Wiseman. Do you know, I've only just got that your surname also means wise man. I mean, we've only been doing this for That's six really months bad. or whatever it is, and it's finally <laughs> dropped. Yes, yeah, so it could all be chance, and we could be cherry-picking these, or it could be that it's a hidden persuader that people have seen their surname and think that's something I should grow into. It's, it's like I will be a wise man. Exactly. Yes, I think all these things are fascinating. We like to think that we're rational. It's the big things that sway us in one direction or another. And what we're seeing here is tiny things. It's the music we're hardly hearing. It's the pupil size. It's the letters in our surname and so on. It's where we live and what we do. Yeah, it's incredible. It's throughout our entire lives. That is the, the magic of hidden persuasion. So it's not surprising that we Richard became a professor. From Podomo and Telltale, this has been Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind. Hosted by Professor Richard Wiseman and Marnie Chesterton. Our producer is Kate White. The executive producers for Podomo are Jake Chudno and Matt White. And for Telltale are Rami Sabar and Jago Lee. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at WisemanPod. Where we'll be regularly asking you for questions for future episodes. You can also email us at WisemanPod at Podomo.com. And if you like this podcast, tell your friends, leave us a review. If you don't like it, tell your friends you did. Why should you be the only ones to suffer? Although it does help others find us. And don't forget to subscribe. Thanks. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.